Judges chapter 9. We're actually going to backtrack to chapter 8 just for a couple of verses. Look at chapter 8, verse 33. Um, give, uh, I, I'm hoping, genuinely, I'm hoping to get all of chapter 9 done today. Judges chapter 9 may be one of the most untaught chapters out of this entire book. It's a completely self-contained account or story, if you will, that has nothing to do with any of the judges. It's just kind of, God, God kind of plugged it in here and there's a reason for it. God wouldn't have put it in here if there wasn't a reason. But for whatever reason, because there aren't any judges listed, we tend to kind of speed read or skip over this. But we do have to lay a little bit of foundation. So bear with me for a few moments. Look at Judges chapter 8, look at verse 33. And it came to pass as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel turned again and went a whoring after Balaam and made Baal Bareth their God. We uh, paused at this verse last week. This is where we left off. Baal Bareth again means God of the commitment. They made like a commitment to this God. Uh, they, they made a covenant, if you will, with this God. They decided that Baal was going to be their God, their one true God. Again, this is immediately after Gideon dies. They're now making covenants. Okay, they've got the Abrahamic covenant, the Israelite covenant. They've got these covenants, the Ten Commandments for crying out loud. They have the first five books of the Bible. They have those in hand. They have those. A written covenant from God. And they're like, no, we want this one instead. As soon as God's deliverer steps off the scene. Look at verse 34. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. So they just, they've completely decided they forgot God. And I think it's unique here in verse 35 that God chose to include that they actually just forgot to be nice to Gideon's family. You realize that going back to chapter 8, they wanted to make Gideon king and his sons and his son's sons. So that's a generational level of trust and kindness. Gideon dies, dies, and they've now completely forgotten his family. Again, it says they neither showed they kindness. And once we get into chapter 9, you're going to realize they went the opposite of kindness. They, they went real opposite of kindness very quickly. So let's jump in and look at the first three verses here. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, and let's pause, go back to chapter 8. Told you there's a little bit of, little bit of setup here. Go back to chapter 8 and look at uh, verse 29. And Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. And Gideon, that is Jerubbabel, had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. He had seventy sons. And his concubine, verse 31, that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. So this is that same Abimelech. And according to this, he is not counted in that number of the seventy sons. Because the Bible says he had seventy sons, he had many wives, this concubine's listed as something different. We find out in chapter 9, we're going to get there in a little bit, that she was one of his maidservants that he formerly married, had a kid. This one's kind of not considered one of his own children. Anytime in the ancient world that a man had a concubine, he had a wife, concubine. Concubine's kids were not given the same level of commitment. There was none. Dad was basically not non-existent in this kid's life, more than likely. And at the same time, when dad dies, the inheritance, he got none of it. Zero. 
because he wasn't considered a direct blood relative because mom wasn't a wife, she was a concubine. Kind of a weird level. You should thank God we live in the world that we live in today. We don't have to deal with this. Um, but this, this kid Abimelech, that's where we're at in chapter nine, verse one. Look at verse two. So he's, got, he's gone to Shechem to his mother's family members. And he's saying, verse two, speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it's better for you, either that all the sons of Jerubbabel, which are three score and 10 persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. This is kind of unique. Again, we got to set the groundwork before we can kind of go through this chapter relatively quickly. Did Gideon take the kingship? Yes or no? What was Gideon's response to, we want to set you as king and then your sons and your sons' sons after you? He said, no, who's supposed to rule over them? The Lord. Verse 2 gives us an idea that Gideon's sons didn't follow dad's command. Look at this. Which are three score and ten persons reign over you. Giving us some indication that Gideon's sons assumed some level of leadership when dad died. Does that make sense? I mean, logically, that's the way it's written. And look at what it, because Abimelech's asking them, or would it be better if just one reigned over you? Instead of 70, wouldn't it be better if it was just one? So we've got some idea here that Gideon's kids didn't listen to him terribly well. It's a valid thought, by the way. You do realize we left off last week. Gideon, the Lord will rule over you. He takes all the trophies. What was the trophy that Gideon asked of the people? Their golden earrings, which equaled out to around 270,000 earrings or so, because the Bible says they had earrings in their ears, broke them off somewhere between 43, 45 pounds worth of gold. What did he make out of that? An ephod, some type of a jacket or a shirt. He made a trophy and everybody went crazy. The Bible says it was a stumbling block to his own family. They thought they were better than everybody else because they had this trophy in their hometown and now Gideon's, if you will, illegitimate son here, Abimelech, is getting his mother's family all stirred up. Would you rather have those guys in charge of you or just one in charge of you? And look at verse 3. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem all these words. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. Again, Gideon refused the kingship which should have immediately applied to his sons and his son's sons after him. At some point or another, his sons decided that they had some level of leadership. And Abimelech, who is his concubine son, goes to his mom's family in Shechem, which is a town not far from Ophrah, where Gideon was from, stirs all these people up, gets them all excited. Hey, this guy's related to us. Why don't we make him the one in charge instead of those 70 guys? Because we don't like them. But we like him because, again, look at what it says. Literally just says, I am bone, your bone and your flesh. And the very last part of verse 3, for they said, he is our brother. There's no other valid reason, by the way, for the men of Shechem to follow this outside of the fact that he's family. Sometimes family can get us in the worst situations. Okay? How many of you ever did something really stupid because family was involved? Anybody? I, I had a couple cousins that used to literally dig up and eat worms. I didn't join them because that's gross, hey? But I had every excuse to because I was with a whole bunch of them. There's a lot of those cousins and they're just, I mean, it's protein. 
We didn't do that. I, I do have scars all over my legs, though, because we would build these ramps because we were pretty sure we could jump our bikes over people. I'm pretty sure one of those scars came because my cousin convinced me to lay down while he was going to jump over me. He didn't make it off the ramp, but his bike did on me. Okay, We've done some dumb things because of family, and that's about what the men of Shechem are about to do. Well, this guy's related to us, and I, I kind of like what he's saying. This is somewhat okay, because he's related to us. This is a good idea. It's not, because Gideon had already left them the idea that no man should rule over you. It should be the Lord. But they're already backtracking on that. Now, with this said, Gideon again stepped back and said, no, I don't want to be your king. So his son shouldn't have been there. So there's no clear line of leadership. He's got 70 sons, 70. Who's supposed to be in charge? Technically the oldest. Go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 20. Chapter 8 and verse 20. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn. Remember, he tried to get this young man to slay uh, Zeba and Zalmunna. The young man wouldn't because he was too young. Jether should have been the one in charge, correct? That's, he's the firstborn. That's how logic works when you come to a monarchy. Gideon had backed off and said no to this kingship. I've repeated this now like 15 times this morning. Because at some point or another, these 70 guys thought they were all in charge. Have any of you ever watched C-SPAN for like more than like 10 minutes and watched Congress try to actually function? I said, try to function. There was a key word in there, try to function. I taught government last year and um, the state of Connecticut, we actually had some laws that they were trying to pass that were actually gonna limit people like me from keeping animals. And some of the laws, by the way, were really, really dumb. You wouldn't be allowed to buy pets from a pet store. That was one of the laws they tried to pass last year is you couldn't buy pets from the pet store. Well, I actually sent in a video and they actually showed that in Congress. So I was showing some of my, my government class how all of that kind of stuff works, that your voice can be heard in government. By the way, it failed. They're trying to pass it again this year and I'll be speaking out again because it's, it's obnoxious. It's dumb. The guy that wants to do this is literally his, half of his campaign got paid for by PETA. Go figure. He's, by, oh, oh, he's also from Paris. Why is he on our Congress in, in the state of Connecticut? I don't know. Anyways, throwing that out there. But these, when you have a whole group of people with completely diverse minds and brains and ideas, work doesn't get done terribly efficiently. By the way, our founding fathers knew that. Government was supposed to work slow because they were supposed to make smart decisions. Just throwing that out there. We've lost the ability to make smart decisions, but... Abimelech's idea had some credibility to it. Would you rather have these 70 spoiled, rotten kids tell you what to do or somebody whose family, one person, help make decisions? It makes a lot of sense. Meriden, we vote for a mayor every four years. Does anybody know what the, the mayor of Meriden does? Nothing. Because they have a city council that makes all the decisions. Uh, when we used to live in Gaylord, Michigan, the town had about 3,500 people. They voted in a mayor, and literally the mayor got voted in every two years. It was the oldest person that lived in Gaylord at the time. They were given a Cadillac to drive around, and they went to ribbon cuttings. And that was, that was the mayor's whole job. I, you would, 
you'd be amazing at that, Mrs. Ramers. You'd get a free car and giant scissors. That sounds awesome, hey? But the mayor, that's, that's all the mayor did in Gaylord. That, they did nothing else because the city council took care of all this. That's kind of where Abimelech's at. He's like, do you want this whole group to do it or would you rather have me? In reality, one person making decisions is a lot easier than 70, am I right? Look at verse number four, though, and this is where we're going to start moving forward. And they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bareth, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. They gave him 70 pieces of silver. How many sons did Gideon have? Single piece of silver per person. When you do the math on all of this, this actually adds up. We don't know exactly how big these pieces of silver were, but on average, this would have been probably anywhere between 50 and 100 bucks per person. And he hires, look what it says, vain and light persons. One commentary uh, that I read, just put this down as, he hired morons with no morals. And I'm like, I like that one. Morons with no morals. First off, these are hitmen that he's paying real, real, real cheap. I, I can't believe I did this. I'm probably going to have the FBI knocking on my door this week. I Googled how much it run, a hitman runs for this, this week. A good hitman will run you about $15,000 per hit. These guys were getting 50 to 100 bucks a person. Morons with no morals. Okay, it's a, it's a great way to do that. Look at verse five. And he went unto his father's house in Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Jerubbabel, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Rounded them all up and killed them in direct succession, one after the other in one place. Notwithstanding yet, Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left for he hid himself. So of the 70 sons, 69 of them got killed in one day, one place, all in direct succession. Okay? And look at verse 6. And all the men of Shechem gathered together and all the house of Milo and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. This, by the way, this is a kind of an interesting word. The house of Milo. Milo is not necessarily a family name. That word actually directly translates from the Hebrew as rampart, fortress. These were the people that lived in the tower of Shechem. If you read through some of the previous verses and chapters and judges, Shechem had a large tower that was part of its fortifications. It's how they knew when enemies were coming. It also gave the people the ability when they were attacked to all gather up into a central location. There was usually some family or some group of people that lived there year round to keep things up to date. Kind of like a lighthouse works. Okay? That kind of a concept. So all the men of Shechem gathered together. And all the people, all the house of Milo, all the people that lived inside the tower, and they made Abimelech king. Israel's first king was not Saul. It was Abimelech. Here's the biggest problem. Where's God in any of these six verses? He's not there. The reason Judges chapter 9 is in our Bibles is it's a glorious example of what happens when we decide to put ourselves in a position that God didn't put us in. God put Saul in that position he put him in because the people wanted a king. This guy, Abimelech, put himself in this position and it demolishes everything. We can't raise ourselves up 
and expect God to bless that. Read through the Bible. There's countless accounts and stories and parables back and forth where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Let God take care of putting you in a pedestal. Let God take care of putting you where you think you belong. Just be faithful and be willing to do whatever he's got for you. Abimelech didn't want that. Abimelech wanted to do this now, got the right people. Morons with no morals to help him succeed to his goal. And the way he started is just the way he ended. And we're gonna go through this relatively quickly. Look at verse seven. Jotham though speaks up. This is the youngest son of Gideon. And for a short amount of time here, for about a third of this chapter, Jotham kind of becomes a prophet. He tells, uh, the Bible, it's listed in a lot of commentaries as a parable. He starts off with a bit of a story. Then he explains that story. And that story comes true, which if it comes true, that according to the Old Testament clarifies him as a prophet. Am I correct? Okay, so Jotham becomes a bit of a prophet. And when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim. Where have we heard Mount Gerizim before? Anybody? There's been multiple altars built on Gerizim. God had proclaimed a whole bunch of blessings to the children of Israel if they were obedient and followed him. This is also right at the top above where Shechem's at. Sorry. Um, Right at the top of the mountain above where Shechem's at. So he can literally just get up there and speak. And the entirety of the valley can hear him from one location. It's perfect amplification without needing a microphone. So Jotham's up there, stood at the top of Mount Gerizim, and he lifted up his voice and cried. So he's not, hey guys, no, no. None of that gentle parenting junk. That doesn't work, by the way, unless you have gentle kids. And I don't know anybody who's got gentle kids, okay? Um, but he, he's getting up there and he cries. He's yelling. He's, he's going off here. And he said unto them, hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, reign thou over us. But the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness, wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine? which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees. Then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. This is a weird story. Hey, this is like Aesop's fables, except Aesop's been doing drugs for a really long time, okay? This is a weird story. The trees all come out one day, and they're like, we need a king tree. So the first one they go after is the olive tree. The olive tree in almost every major ancient culture was the most sacred of all the trees. Because the olives themselves were for food. Olive oil was used for cooking. It was used in all forms, not just by the Jews, but in almost every major ancient culture, olive oil was a symbol of purity. It was a symbol of the spirit world. There's a whole bunch of connections to that. So they went after the olive tree and the olive tree said, no, my job's too important. 
And then they went after the fig tree. The fig tree was one of the most popular fruits and food groups because figs could be dried and turned into dates, which can last for an extended period of time and provide all kinds of food for them. Said, no, my job's too important. Then they went after the vine. You, here's a little odd note. If you pay attention, the olive tree is about as large as your average tree. The fig tree is significantly shorter, tops out at about 10 to 12 feet tall. Vines usually top out at about this tall. The very last one they go after is the bramble. This is the low-lying thorns and thistles on the ground. They went from top end to lower and lower and lower. There's a lot of symbology in this story. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But I want you to pay attention to a specific phrase in verse 15. The bramble speaks. Put your trust in my shadow. Anybody here ever picked like raspberries, blackberries, okay? That would be in the same line as a bramble. They got thorns and thistles. Do you ever go and just like curl up underneath a raspberry bush and get the shade on a nice day? No, not unless you're willing to like lay in the dirt and shuffle under there and get all scratched up all along. In order for these people... These trees, if you will, to make the bramble king and put trust in my shadow, they have to bring themselves low, well below their station. I told you, there's a lot of symbology in this particular story, but the bramble also finishes with a threat. I'll be your king, you lower yourselves to below my level so that you're in my shadow, or I'll destroy you. That's not good leadership. Good leadership brings somebody up to your level, so now you've got two people working at the same level. This is bad leadership. This is dictatorship. You get below my feet, or I'm going to destroy you. This is just, it's, it's interesting here, okay? We're going to jump right into verse 16. I told you we're going to go quickly at this point. Now, therefore, if you have done truly and sincerely... In that ye have made Abimelech king, and if ye have dealt with Jerubbabel in his house, and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands. For my father fought for you, and adventured his life far, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. And ye are risen up against my father's house this day, and have slain his sons, threescore and ten persons, upon one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother." This is intriguing. This is where Jerubbabel is kind of like giving the, if you will, the moral of his story. And look at again, verse 16. If you have done truly and sincerely, if you're doing things right, then good job. But then he goes off. You killed all my brothers and you've dishonored and disgraced my dad's name. So if you're doing the right thing, you're not. Then good job. Great work. And by the way, this is where we get the clarification I mentioned earlier that uh, Abimelech's mother was a maidservant, okay? Uh, it's listed here. And here's, the, here's an intriguing part. Abimelech was made king, but he's got a very, 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 very limited range. He's not the first king of Israel. He is Israel's first king, but he's not the first king of Israel. Because look at what it says in verse 18, king over the men of Shechem. Abimelech's plan was real short-sighted. He just wanted to be in charge. 
But instead of possibly waiting, doing what God wanted him to do and doing right, and maybe helping the entire nation, he's got one little chunk, one little thing, the town of Shechem. That's it. Like I said, he's not the first king of Israel, but he is Israel's first king. Confusing wording, but it makes sense. Look at verse 19. And if ye have... Uh, if ye then have dealt truly and sincerely with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. He tells this whole story more than likely heard his brothers dying as he was running away, tells them the story of the trees, gives them the moral of the story. If you did things right, rejoice. Everything will be good. If you didn't do things right, everybody's gonna get destroyed in the end. And then he runs away, and from this point on, Jotham's never heard from again. We don't know what happens to Jotham. There's not a lot of indication. He just shows up, makes a prophecy, runs off. According again to the Old Testament law, his prophecy comes true, so he has proven a true prophet. He's speaking on God's behalf here. And by the way, it's about the only point in this entire chapter that God shows up. All of the rest of this chapter is men doing what they want to do and the consequences of what happens when we do that. That's the point of this chapter. We've talked about it repeatedly. Book of Judges goes through these cycles. They do what they want. They get punished. God sends a deliverer. They do right. And then they go right back to doing what they want. But uh, up until now, God's really not given us any of that in-between information on what they were doing before a new deliverer came about. Are we okay? But for whatever reason here in chapter 9, God decided, you know what? We need to pause and give, give future readers, if you will, future studiers of the Bible an indication of just what was happening. And the Bible says every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Abimelech was doing what was right in his own eyes. He got what he wanted for a little while. Let's keep reading. When Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel... Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the cruelty done to the threescore and ten sons of Jerubbabel might come. And their blood be laid upon Abimelech their brother, which slew them. And upon the men of Shechem, which aided him in the killing of his brethren. So for whatever reason, Abimelech's in charge for three years. We get the idea that his kingdom, if you will, had stretched out. Because the Bible does tell him it says reigned over Israel. So it stretched out from being king of Shechem to at some point his influence had spread. Are we okay? During these three years, God sends an evil spirit and the people of Shechem and Abimelech, they're no longer getting along after these three years. Have you ever seen a dictatorship that went for any period of time and went well? Can anybody name me one dictatorship that went well? No, there aren't any. Okay? They don't end well. They're usually full of treachery. They're full of deceit. Uh, Joseph Stalin was in charge of Russia for four plus decades. And do you know how many murders he had to commit to keep his job during that time? He's listed as being directly responsible for killing nearly 50 million Russians during his time in order to keep his reign. You can't keep this up. And starting off with murder of 69 people 
and keep that up. Well, according to this, they finally came back and, hey, we're going to hold you responsible for killing your brothers. We helped you. We paid for it. But now we're going to hold you responsible. They're trying to find legal ways to kick him out. Okay, And the men of Shechem set liars in wait for him at the top of the mountains, and they robbed all that came along by the way, and it was told to Bimelech. So their idea of we're going to get back at you is we're just going to rob all of your people as they travel back and forth. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brethren and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. And they went out into the fields and gathered their vineyards and trod the grapes and made merry and went into the house of their God and did eat and drink and cursed Abimelech. So this random guy, Gael, shows up and he just starts talking smack about Abimelech and everybody likes it. There's this big loudmouth guy that doesn't, does, he's not going to, he's standing up to the establishment. He's going against the man they, they go out, and look at what it says, gathered vineyards, trod grapes, made merry, and they went into the house of Baal, and they got drunk while cursing Abimelech. So they just had this big old drunken party talking about how bad Abimelech is, and Gael, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel and Zebul, his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for why should we serve him? By the way, does this sound at all like modern-day politics? Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? And going off, just going off. In verse 29, And would to God this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase thine army and come out. So Gaal comes in as this folk hero. He's He's a man of the people. But look at his phrasing here. Would to God this people were under... My hand, not under God's hand, under my hand, then would I remove Abimelech. So even the people's new hero, he's not including God anywhere in his rhetoric, anywhere in his life. So the guy they set up as their hero to take over after Gideon steps off, make me this. I will do this. You need one, not 70. I can take care of you. Now they're mad at him, and this new guy shows up using the same wording. I told you, it sounds a lot like modern-day politics, doesn't it? People don't change. We have different clothes, and we have cell phones now, but the concept's the same. It's been that way, by the way. This is about 3,600 years ago, and if we rewrote that into modern English, that sounds like a 2024 presidential campaign slogan right there. It's not different. God included Judges chapter 9 to let us know repeatedly, you make decisions without God, they will fall apart. They will fail. He also included Judges chapter 9, and I'm clearly not going to finish this, because he needed to remind us we are the exact same as these people. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, oh, well, that's a different time. Those were different people. I'm, I'm better than that. I'm more educated than that. No, you're not. No, I'm not. We need God. Plain and simple. If we're willing to put God first, let the Lord rule over you, as Gideon said, we won't run into any of these issues that these men had. That's it. End of story. You realize if every single person in this room would just say, God, you're in charge. Today, tomorrow, and every day after that, our entire lives would change. Our church would change. 
Our state would change, our country would change, and our world could change, but it starts with us. Are you willing to let God rule? Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything that you do for us.